Do you know what is sweeter than honey and better than money? Anybody? Sweeter than honey and better than money. We read it a little bit earlier in our scripture reading. This old book is described as being sweeter than honey and better than money, uh, straight out of Psalm uh, 19. We're launching a new uh, worship series as we, as we begin this year. Uh, on, on this old book, this, these ancient words that, that we have that many of us carry around all over the place, or, or maybe, maybe the words of Scripture are, are on your device, um, but it's on, on the good book. The old, this old book is, is what we want to focus on uh, over, really over the next uh, five weeks. I want to spend some time um, teaching all of us and examining what, what's, what's in this book. What do we, what do we believe ab- about uh, this collection of works here, about the words that are on these uh, pages? I, I want to explore it. Uh, I want to learn about uh, where it came from, talk about how it, it came together. Um, I want to talk about how we look at interpreting Scripture. I want to talk about whether or not it's still relevant for us today. I want to know if it's, if it's reliable. We can wrestle with problems that we might have with it. Uh, we can talk about why we believe that it's still a source of, of ultimate truth for us. So the series, it's called This Old Book. What's in the Bible? Why do we continually go back to it? Where did it come from? It's really a miniature library. If you go to your table of contents in your Bible, there's, you'll find that there's uh, 66 different books listed uh, in the pages of our scripture. So it's a little miniature library. There's 39 books in what we call the, the Old Testament and, and 27 more books in what constitutes what we call the New Testament. Uh, it, it, was, it came together. Um, there's more than 40 authors of the books that we have uh, in, in our Bible, uh, people ranging from shepherds to prophets to doctors to fishermen to, to kings. There's all sorts of walks of life represented in the authorship of the Bible, took over 1,500 years for uh, all of the writings to come together. It has a consistent message from beginning to end. There's poetry in it, there's prose in it, there's history, there's wisdom, there's law, there's biography, there's personal letters, all written to a wide variety of people, a really vast audience. It's really a, a diverse group of writings to a diverse group of people. When we think about the Bible, specifically in the context of our culture, 2015, uh, it seems to me, and studies would show this, I think, to be accurate, that the Bible's influence in our society is declining. Um, Barna Group does a research poll every year. It's called the State of the Bible, and they do it every year, and they ask essentially the same questions year over year over year to see um, how the Bible uh, stacks up in, in our culture. 
in 2014 was the very first year that the statistic for people who are skeptical about the Bible, people who are agnostic towards the Bible, people who think that, yeah, it may be nice writing and it's a good collection of stories written by men uh, over hundreds of years and, and there's good wisdom and advice, but it's essentially just another book. That, that number of people uh, that are skeptical towards the Bible matched the number of people who read the Bible regularly. And the way they define regularly is four times a week or more. And that statistic has doubled over the last three years. So three years ago, 10% were skeptical. Uh, 2014, that number jumped to 19% were skeptical. So the Bible's influence in our culture seems to be declining. Uh, but it still holds a place in our society. Uh, it is still regarded in general as a, a sacred book. Uh, there's general interest out in society. If you look at uh, many of the movies that have uh, been made over the last year or two, you know, we have The Son of God and we have the Noah movie and, and the one about Moses and the Exodus that is out. There's a general interest um, in some of the stories that are uh, contained in the pages of our scripture. Uh, I, I did a lot of, uh, it intrigued me, so I did a little bit of research this week. I studied some of these surveys uh, pretty closely, and uh, sometimes when I receive a statistic or a fact, it may, it may get my attention initially, uh, but I'll forget it fairly quickly, or I don't have something to visualize it. And so I I wanted to, to play a little game this morning to help you visualize some of the statistics uh, that I uncovered this week. So, uh, if you have, everybody have an orange number? Did everybody get an orange number? I got number seven here. So, everybody, um, I have them on my phone here, so I'm going to open this up. I need everybody to stand up. So these, all these statistics come from a variety of places. Uh, the Barna Group, the American Bible Society, Lifeway, and Religion News Service. So everybody's got your orange number, everybody's on their feet. Uh, and so this first set of statistics are on society in general. So just the average American person. Doesn't matter if they go to church or not, or call themselves a Christian or not. This is just American people in general. Uh, so if you have the number one, number one, go ahead and sit down. All right, so part of this game is you're allowed to turn around and see, because I want you to visualize this. So feel free to move about, you know, you can go all the way 360, but there's a lot of people still standing up, right? 90%, 88% actually uh, of people or, or households own a Bible. So essentially nine out of 10 households uh, have a Bible. Okay, so number two. Somebody have a number two? If you have a number two, go ahead and sit down. All right, still, still quite a few people standing, right? So can you see? It's 80% uh, think, 80% 80, 80 of people think that the Bible is sacred. All right, so if you have the number three or four, go ahead and sit down. Three and four, sit down. Okay, look around. Uh, the remaining people, uh, 
which is a little more, it's just almost 60% of people, or of, of Americans, think that the Bible has too little influence in culture. So that's still a pretty good number there. All right, so if you have a 7, an 8, a 9, or a 10, sit down. All right, so now most people are sitting down, right? We have about 20% of the people who are still standing. And the 20% who are still standing are people who read their Bible on a regular basis, which means four or more times a week. So all the households that had Bibles versus the the opinion that the influence of the Bible is declining, uh, we had lots of people standing up now, not so many people standing up now. Very few people actually read the Bible on a regular basis. Uh, Okay, so fives and sixes are still standing. Um, So one through eight, I need everybody in one through eight on your feet again. This group of people believes that they are knowledgeable about the Bible. This is all of American society. 80% of people feel they're knowledgeable about the Bible. All right, everybody can sit down. <clears throat> so 80% of, the, 80, 80% of Americans think that they're knowledgeable about the Bible, but only 43% of people uh, can name the first five books of the Bible. Uh, less than half of the people could identify more than two or three of Jesus' disciples. This one, this one will get you. 12% of people think that Joan of Arc is Noah's wife. <laughs> and <laughs> quite, a few, quite a few respondents on one of these uh, surveys uh, said that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. 80% of people think they're knowledgeable about the Bible. But, you know, it's one thing to look at statistics when we consider all of American society, knowing that there are many people out there who aren't regular church attenders or, you know, don't practice the Christian faith. So it's, it's one thing to look at statistics and... and you know, pass judgment or, or make determinations on that, because, you know, some of these statistics I, I probably would have guessed fairly accurately. If somebody doesn't go to church or doesn't have a particular relationship with Jesus, well, I don't expect them to pick up the Bible and read it on a regular basis. What is telling to me is the next set of statistics. When we look at people who are churchgoers, these are people who Uh, in their mind, attend church regularly, however they define that. Doesn't necessarily mean that they've made a decision to to become a Christian, but they are people who uh, at least go to church. So people in all of us sitting here uh, today. So I need you to stand up again. Everybody has their number. Don't trade it with anybody. (laughs) You can if you want. So, Uh, If you have the number 10, go ahead and sit down. So the remaining 90% of churchgoers 
say that this is accurate, this is an accurate statement for them. I desire to please and honor Jesus in all I do. 90% of people who go to church believe that statement. All right, so seven, eight, and nine, sit down. So the remaining 60% of churchgoers agree with this statement, that throughout the day, they find themselves thinking about biblical truths. All right, so everybody sit down. The same people who just made those statements, I desire to please and honor Jesus in all I do, and throughout the day I find myself thinking about biblical truths. The same group of people said this about their engagement with the biblical text. Uh, twos and sevens. I'm calling you out. Stand up. These people rarely or never read the Bible. Not you specifically. <laughs> you know what I'm 20%, essentially 20% of people who go to church outside of Sunday morning worship service rarely or never read the Bible. You go ahead and sit down. Um, fives and eights. Congratulations. <laughs> you read your Bible every day. Did you realize that it's almost the exact same percentage of people, of churchgoers, who read their Bible every day versus rarely or never? The other 60% reads their Bible somewhere between two times a week to once a month. So you, everybody can go ahead and sit down. Um, that's kind of troubling to me. When we look at all of us here and we would say, yes, we, we're churchgoers. I want my life to honor and glorify Jesus. I want biblical truths to regularly come to me through the course of the day, to remind me who I am and whose I am and, and what agenda I'm following. Yet when I look out at the statistics and I trust the people who put these statistics together. They're very well-known and professionals in their field. I think they're pretty accurate. And, and my own experience in, in church work would suggest that, that this is fairly accurate, that um, this is an issue, in, in my estimation, that it requires some urgent attention. Um, I have a high priority that... that I carry around with me uh, to help you engage more with God's Word. I put a very high priority on spending time in the context of our worship, looking at Scripture, unpacking it, and talking about it, and helping you discover ways that, that maybe you could apply it in your everyday life. I put a high priority on on assembling and working through the core guide that we publish on a weekly basis to help you throughout the week uh, be able to stick with the messaging and to, to discover other places in Scripture that may talk about and address the same types of things that we are talking about on Sunday morning. 
I have all of those high priorities because I look at statistics like this and I recognize that there is there's a huge issue. It requires our urgent attention. See, what, what these surveys to me uncover is, is what I call the say and do gap. You know, this, have you heard about the say and do gap? It's when we know the right answer, and so whenever we're asked a question, we know, we know how we're supposed to answer, and we nod our head yes. But when it comes right down to practicing what we know, somehow we don't do it. We end up shaking our head no. Maybe not our head turning like that, but our action says that we don't, uh, we aren't really willing to put into practice what it is that we know. You know, I, if you say that it's a good thing to love your neighbor as yourself, you can, you can affirm that as a statement, love your neighbor as yourself, but you can't affirm that if while at the same time you, you also spend time gossiping about your neighbor. There's a gap between say and do. This time of year, uh, you go to the exercise gyms and they're full because people have made a New Year's resolution and I need to get in shape. I need to start eating better and I need to start exercising. We all, most of us would sh shake our head and nod our head, yes, I affirm that. I should be in better health than I am and, and, and maybe that requires better eating habits. Maybe that requires you know, more exercise. But in a few weeks, the gyms will be back to their, their normal traffic because that gap between what we say and what we do will kick in. And we'll affirm one thing, but our practice will lead us in, in another direction. And, and I think that as we look at the Bible, when we consider all of the research that's been done, the statistics that we just kind of acted out in our midst this morning, uh, we find that there's a gap in the say and do among churchgoers, people who consider themselves potentially to be Christians. There's a huge gap between what we say about the Bible and, and how we are engaged with the Bible and our actual practice of spending time reading it. And I wonder, I wonder why that is. A guy like me asks lots of questions. I see those statistics, especially on the churchgoers, and, and I begin to wonder, why is that? And I think back in the course of my own journey, I, re I remember the very first time that I ever set out to read the Bible through. I was going to do it the old-fashioned way, cover to cover. Start on page one, Genesis. In the beginning, God created. So I was excited. I, this was a new adventure, a new journey. Um, I had engaged Scripture as part of Sunday school classes, and, and there were some of the stories that were just so intriguing that, I don't know, I might have been 10 or 11 or 12 years old at the time. This was the first time that I thought, I think I can read the whole book cover to cover. In the beginning, God created, and, and you get that beautiful story, the poetic narration of how God created the earth, and, and then, you know, you, you move in, and, and, and the author starts talking about Adam 
and Eve, and then they're in this paradise garden. I just, as a kid, I remember thinking how exotic that sounded, and that tree that, that God said, you know, everything in the garden is yours, except I want you to stay away from this tree, and, and God put a boundary up around that tree, and it wasn't long before the serpent came along and, and tempted Adam and Eve to, to break the boundary that, that God had set. I mean, the early stories in Genesis are just really intriguing. They get kicked out of the garden, and sin entered the world, and, and then they had Cain and Abel, and, and those two boys, they had sibling rivalry. They didn't really get along, and one kills the other, jealous rage, and wow, this is, this is pretty exciting. I can't wait to get, you know, halfway through. Page five. You get to the begat section. You have uh, the lineage, the first list of so, who so-and-so had so-and-so had so-and-so, and boring, but I plowed through that because, you know, I knew that Noah's story was coming up, and so, you know, just a page or so later, we get to the story of Noah and the ark, and, um, and that leads into the story of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God's covenant. Genesis is actually pretty entertaining. It's a good read. And then the pages turn over into Exodus, and the, the people that have formed out of Abraham's lineage, they find themselves in slavery and in, in Egypt. And you get the story of Moses' call in, in the burning bush, and, and God says, Moses, I want you to go lead those people out of slavery. And Moses says, I'm just not qualified. I'm not the guy. Go anyway okay. So he goes and, let my people go, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, no, I have no reason to let your people go. God brought the plagues, freed the people, and they get out into the wilderness, and they get to the promised land, and um, along the way, I gave up. Exodus turns to Leviticus, and in Leviticus, there was just a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't, I didn't get. It didn't make sense to me on my first read. I didn't see how any of that learning how to sacrifice an offering would be relevant to my life as a tween. And my Bible, well, it got closed, and it got put on a shelf. Of course, I would carry it to church, and then I would open it up in the context of worship and go through it in Sunday school class and other ministries that, in our church that encouraged us to memorize Scripture. But it was, it was what I call cherry-picked Scripture. You know, the one or two verse reference that may be in the top of a devotional that you're going through? And you open up, you know, I'm going to read these two verses and, and I'm going to read the thought that takes up much more space than the actual biblical text. And I'm going to call that reading the Bible. Or I'm going to read my Sunday school lesson and, and that's going to be okay. That was my experience with Scripture for a long time. You know, so as I think about why is it that churchgoers aren't engaged with Scripture 
You think, well, maybe people just think that it's an old book. Maybe some of us lean more towards that skeptical category that, you know, there's good stuff in the Bible, but I'm not, I'm not convinced that it's the living, breathing, authentic Word of God. M maybe that's a reason. I hear lots of people say they just don't have enough time. I don't have enough. My schedule is so packed, Pastor, you would just not believe that yeah, I, had just, I couldn't get to it today or this week. Maybe it's not enough time. Maybe it's a lack of interest in, in lots of the content. Maybe you struggle with finding connection to your life. Maybe there's just some things in here that, that confuse you or some spots in the text that you struggle with because you don't understand why God would say or do something. And so maybe that Maybe that created some doubt and you just set it aside. I, I don't know. There's all sorts of, of reasons. When we talk about the Bible, we often hear, uh, we often hear some 50-cent words. When we talk about, especially doctrine of Scripture. Uh, when we talk about the Bible, you may hear words like uh, infallible, inerrant, inspired. And, and while most of us would be able to define what each of those words mean, when we put inerrant Scripture together, maybe we struggle, well, what does that exactly mean? What does it mean for the Word to be infallible? What does it mean for, for this to be called the inspired uh, Word of God? You, you, hear, um, you hear people say things like, uh, well, God wrote the Bible. Uh, or you hear that it's the inspired word. And it's in the pages of Scripture. The Bible actually says, and it says that about itself, that all Scripture is God-breathed. Paul wrote that uh, to Timothy. And, and I, love, I love that picture. I love that metaphor that Paul uses here to describe how we got what's in the pages of our scripture. This picture of, of God breathing out his words to prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and to, to people like uh, Paul and, and John. And God speaks and, and he reveals himself in so many different ways to us. God's words aren't just lifeless print. They, they have breath in them. God breathed into these words the breath of life. God, God used humans to record his words. And, and Peter reminds us that, that God's spirit moved the writers. The writers were inspired and carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, God inspired humans to write this book. And, and in turn, these writers, they used their, their words, they used their experiences, they used their context, they used their culture and the ministries that they served in, they used their personality, they used their literary style, all to record what, what God had given to them, what God had spoken to them. Before all, of, before all of the words in this Bible were in print, they were the breath of God. God spoke these words. And we have them because he spoke them to humans and they recorded them for us. So how should we treat? Uh, how should we respond 
to the words that God speaks to us. I was looking through, uh, you know, there's multiple passages, but there's two verses that I just wanted to focus your attention in. In your core guide this week, um, I have you reading the whole, uh, the entirety of Psalm 119. Psalm 119, if you don't know, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's 176 verses long. Uh, The 119th chapter of Psalms is longer than 17 of the books in the New Testament. And the whole thing, the balance of all of the words and sentences in Psalm 119 point to one thing, and that's the psalmist's love of God's law. Essentially, the psalmist's joy and enthusiasm and delight in God's Word. Two verses in Psalm 119, uh, 47 and 48, the psalmist writes, For I delight in your commands because I love them. I reach out for your commands which I love that I may meditate on your decrees. As you read through it this week, you'll notice that that time and again, words like that bubble to the surface in the writing. That that this writer is so in love with God's law, with, with God's word, that he can't help but express that in joy and delight and love. Do you you like reading the Bible? I didn't say, do you read the Bible? Do you like reading the Bible? I'll be honest. I I haven't always enjoyed it. I think that's okay to say. There's parts of this that I struggle with. There's things I don't understand that I still don't understand that I'm still trying to come to grips with and, and to learn. I love this book deeply now, but that wasn't always the case. Sometimes I remember back and I think my Bible engagement, my Bible reading was because I felt like I was supposed to, like it was an obligation. And when you approach something as an obligation, it doesn't always end well. You may become disillusioned. And my prayer, my my prayer for you is that you would fall in love with God's Word. That that you, like the psalmist, would have these same words to say about your engagement with Scripture. That, That you would be interested that you would be excited, that you would look forward to the times that you got to spend reading God's Word, that you would actually like reading the Bible. See, I think, no, I know, that Bible engagement is, it's directly related to spiritual growth. You can't grow spiritually without the power of the Holy Spirit and you can't grow spiritually without engaging in the words that God has given to us. See, we read, we read the Scripture. Um, I want to be careful how I say this, because both are valuable. Too often, I think we come at 
the Bible seeking information. So we have a, an informational reading of the Scripture instead of a relational reading of the Scripture. Do we have a relationship with God or it's available to us? And one of the ways that we get to know the other person in the relationship is, is through reading. There's a huge difference between how you read a novel and how you read a textbook. When, when I read a novel, there's not a lot of times where I'm pausing and thinking about things. I'm letting the story wash over me, maybe even imagining myself as being a part of the story. Sometimes when Christians read the Bible, we come at it from a, I need to learn something. I need to study it like a textbook. And when we go about doing that, sometimes it removes that relational piece from the equation. Keith Farron, um, he goes around and he, he has memorized huge chunks of the Bible. Uh, and he will go around to churches and, and perform, if you will, recite from memory books of the Bible. He's very well done. It brings a vibrance to the text that sometimes is lost in a quiet reading. It comes to life in front of you. He, he says that, um, uh, Keith says, that if our time in God's Word was primarily relational instead of informational, then it would have a significant higher probability of being transformational in our life. You don't have to learn something every time you open the Bible. Sometimes you're just building the relationship with God. Sometimes it's just about grabbing a cup of coffee or a tea or a Coca-Cola and hanging out with God. Sometimes, sometimes He'll teach you something. Sometimes He'll challenge you. Sometimes he'll bring you peace or comfort or a word of encouragement. And when he does, you'll be ready for it because you've practiced just being in relationship with him. So how do you do this? How do you learn to love the Bible? How do you, how do you in, learn to enjoy reading Scripture? And that's what I wanted to leave you with this morning was seven practices for finding enjoyment reading the Bible. Uh, so number one, read prayerfully, or as I like to say, make a prayer sandwich. Uh, and what that means is that you begin with your Bible reading with prayer and you end your Bible with reading with prayer. And if you like a double-decker sandwich, then sometimes you pause in the middle and you pray in the middle of your reading. Make a prayer sandwich. Why would, you, why would you set your Bible reading in the context of, of prayer? One, well, it sets, the time, it sets the tone of your time with God. Uh, you pray as you begin. Uh, if we read in a, in a relational way, it's like beginning a conversation with God. Thank, thank God for His Word. 
Thank him for your time together. Ask him to open your eyes and your ears and your heart and your mind to what he might have for you that day. Ask him to help you remain focused and close your time together with a word of thanks, thanking him for all of those things and the things that, that you read. Read prayerfully. Number, the, the second um, point in, in reading prayerfully is that it reminds us why we're reading. Prayer reminds us uh, that we read the Bible to in, encounter God. Uh, so we, as we pray, we are looking to the Holy Spirit to, to help us with uh, understanding and inspiration. And the third thing about praying is that it provides protection. Uh, let me ask you a question. When you ever, when you read the Bible, do you ever get distracted yeah, I get distracted all the time. You know, maybe it's a, maybe it's a distraction, maybe it's a confusion, maybe it's a, you know, you get this thought, you know, this is, I don't understand this, I don't get it, it seems boring, I might as well just quit. Or your mind wanders to, do, to your to-do list, or you look at the clock, wow, I must have been reading for, oh, two minutes. Distractions come while we read the Bible. Do you suppose that there's an adversary out there that would love nothing more than to get you off your game? That would love nothing more than to poke you in the side and say, hey, you want to look at the clock? This is really boring. This is meaningless stuff. It doesn't, it's not relevant for you. Praying while you're reading, setting your reading in the context of prayer praise against this. Ask God to help you remain focused and to block the adversary from distracting you from what he might have for you. So the first thing, first practice for finding enjoyment in reading the Bible, read prayerfully. The second is read with high expectations. I managed family fun parks for a long time. And there's one thing that I noticed People didn't come to our fun park to have a bad time. Everybody who came to the family fun park had high expectations of being entertained, of spending time with friends or enjoying a specific activity. Nobody showed up at the park with a specific goal to mope around and be sad and have a bad time. You see the eyes of the kids who would come and they would have their birthday parties there and, and their, expe ex their expectations were on steroids. I mean, they were way up here. The kids having birthday parties, they were looking to have fun. And you know what? When they came with high expectations of having fun, they did. And I suppose the opposite uh, is true. Uh, that we can approach the Bible in, in the same way that we we go into our reading with a high expectation that we're going to love it, that, that God is going to speak to us through this word, that we are going to have an encounter with our Creator. If we go at our reading and we expect to be bored, you'll probably be bored. If you go at your reading expecting to be confused and that you won't understand, you, you probably won't understand. If you expect can be to be confused, it will likely happen. 
If you don't expect to enjoy it, you won't. So, number two is come at your scripture reading setting the expectation way up here. Tell God, you know, I am so looking forward to this time. I expect that this is going to enrich my life. I expect that this is going to draw me closer to you in some way. And maybe the only way on a, any given day is that you're actually spending time in the Word, whether you understand it or not. Set your expectation high. Number three, read out loud. Maybe awkward the first couple times that you do it when you're sitting in your living room talking to yourself. But I can tell you that you hear words differently when you, when you speak them out loud, when, it, when they are audible. Uh, one, it's, it, you slow down your reading just a little bit. It takes a little bit longer to get through it, and, and you begin to hear Scripture in a different way. So number three is, is read out loud. Number four is, is read alone. I retitled it. I wanted to call it Read Naked, um, but you, I didn't think you'd get the point right away. Um, read, uh, read alone. So we'll go with that. Uh, you, God, and the Bible. I, I know that many of us like to have our Bible, and the clothing that's around the Bible is, you know, three or four notes or commentaries or you know, several daily devotionals or Bible studies that we're going through, and we clutter our workspace like this, and so we read something in Scripture, and then, you know, and then, we, and then we go and see what other people have to say about it. And so when I say read naked, get rid of all that other stuff. There's a place for it. There is a time where you will go deep into Scripture and study a small passage, maybe even a word or a phrase, and you will go to multiple commentaries to try and figure out what what exactly are we saying here? But sometimes when we're reading relationally, we need to get rid of all these other distractions. Because what happens is we'll read a little bit and then we'll spend more time trying to figure out what do other people say about this text? I, I know this is a fact. I'm a professional at it. There were times when I was going through seminary that I spent more time reading about the Bible than reading the Bible itself. And I could tell a difference in my life. The Bible wasn't as alive and enriched like you would think it would be because I'm studying the Bible. Well, I was studying about the Bible. I wasn't spending as much time reading it. So one key is, is to read alone. Remove some of those distractions, and some of the time that you spend reading, do it with just you, Bible, and God. Number five, read together. Now, what are you saying, Pastor? You just said read alone. It sounds contradictory. Well, it's both. Uh, study God's Word with other people. Uh, get together with your core group or Bible study group. Have a conversation about God's Word. It will help you immensely. Knowing that you are going to study a passage of Scripture or read some Scripture together with, with other people, uh, one, it will, it will um, give you some accountability. It will improve your consistency because you know you will come together and be responsible for some information. And if you're, like, if you're anything like me, if I know that there's other people that are going to 
that are going to come to the group and they're going to have read and studied, well, I probably better too. I don't want to let them down. So read together. We need each other to help stay focused and to grow in the Word. Number six is read the whole story. And this is, uh, last week I said I wanted to challenge all of us in 2015 uh, to read the Bible cover to cover, or the entirety of the Bible. Um, And so number six, as we fit it into these uh, seven practices, is part of the 2015 challenge for all of us, and that's to to, uh, experience the entirety of Scripture to read the whole story, uh, even the hard parts, even the parts that we think are boring or the parts that we don't think are relevant. Um, we need to have this exposure to the, the whole story so that we, be, that we can begin to see the continuity that exists from beginning uh, to end. See, when, when we read the whole story, we can see God's relentless pursuit of relationship with us. We can see the continual ways that He reaches out to save us. God's grace is evident from the beginning to the end of Scripture. See, when we read the whole story, each passage that we break out and we study, uh, we can can then begin to piece into into the the whole story of God. And as we interpret Scripture, we can use other Scriptures from the whole story to to help us understand the passage that we may be studying. So number six is read the whole story. And number seven uh, is read with a daily plan. Have a plan of attack. Know what you're going to read. Have it written down so that when you come to the Bible, you, you, you know, I'm going to read this today. Take some of the thinking out of it, but read every day and, and read with a daily plan. John Wesley, he, he encouraged his folks to read at the beginning and ending of each day. Um, I want to just say, let's all read daily. Let's commit to that together. Uh, there's lots of plans available that are out there. Some of them are, you know, the obvious one is page one to the end, cover to cover, uh, there's some Bibles that are organized or plans that are organized chrono- chronologically. And so as you read, what chronological means is uh, you will read the order in which the Bible was written. So it shuffles the order a little bit, uh, and you can follow through on, on how the Bible story came together uh, on a timeline. And then there's other plans where it takes a little Old Testament, a little New Testament, and a little Psalms, and a little Proverbs, and puts them all into daily readings. And, and that's the plan that I... I'm putting out there uh, for all of us to follow. And if you have your core guide, there's a new piece on the core guide. Uh, there's a little gray box on the inside. And every week, I'm going to publish the readings for the week. And I probably should package it all up so we have it all in one document. But every week, the core guide will have uh, the readings that will take you through the, the entirety of Scripture in 2015. Now, before you check out... Um, Signing up for that, uh, let me give you a couple uh, statistics or thoughts, if you will. There are 775,000 words in the Bible. That's a lot. The average person reads 200 to 250 words per minute. So if you do the math on 775,000 words based on our reading speed, it will take you between 10 and 12 minutes a day to read the entirety of Scripture 
in a year? Do you have 10 minutes a day? Let's just say it, it takes, uh, you know, 15 minutes to get through the daily reading. Do you have 15 minutes? You know, I know it might cause some of us to uh, maybe give up a little time on Pinterest or Facebook or, you know, guys, maybe that's 15 minutes less of watching Sports Center. But I think that all of us can commit to finding 10 or 15 minutes in a day to commit to reading the entirety of Scripture. That's my challenge. Uh, the practices, read prayerfully, read with high expectations, read out loud, read alone, read together, read the whole story, and read with a daily plan. See, I believe that if we, if we begin to practice even some of these, that, that you'll begin to enjoy the Bible more. That in the coming days and weeks and months, you, if you have never really liked reading the Bible, but you've done it ob out of obligation, maybe your attitude will change a little bit and you'll find yourself just going back and not getting enough because it's feeding you and you're in relationship with God and you experience an encounter with Him every time you open the pages of Scripture. See, God breathed the words. He spoke them into existence. But he's still speaking the words. They were inspired to these writers, but they are still inspired now. Because when, they, when we read them, God's Holy Spirit is at work in us inspiring us. So it might be this old book, but it is still speaking. People of God said, amen. Would you stand for prayer?